On this episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be discussing David Lynch's Dune, starring Kyle MacLachlan from 1984. Joining us for discussion is the HHWLOD Network's Jim Dietz. Welcome to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, a bi-weekly movie podcast that features hosts Brandon and Cullen discussing a film from cinema's past, considered but not limited to being a cult classic. As a disclaimer, each episode will include plot spoilers and may contain harsh language. Episodes available on cultcinemacavalcade.com and iTunes. Like the show on Facebook and follow on Twitter at CC Cavalcade. For questions, suggestions, and all inquiries, contact us via mail at cultcinemacavalcade.com. Brandon, and as always with me is your co-hoster from the House of Cavalcade, Cullen! I'm glad that I'm not the only person talking about this movie so I can figure out what the fuck I watched. (laughs) Today we are here to discuss David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel, Dune. Cullen, how spicy is this plot? A duke's son leads desert warriors against the galactic emperor and his father's evil nemesis when they assassinate his father and free their desert world from the emperor's rule. Dune is written and directed by David Lynch and stars. Here we go. (laughs) Kyle MacLachlan, Francesca Anis, Everett McGill, Sean Young, Sting, Brad Dourif, Patrick Stewart, Max von Sydow, Dean Stockwell, Jurgen Proshnow, Paul Smith, Jack Nance, Cyan Phillips, Silvana Mangano, Jose Ferrer, Richard Jordan, Freddie Jones, Kenneth McMillan, Virginia Madsen, and Alicia Witt. Music by Toto. Theme by Brian Eno. And creature design by Carl Rambaldi. I welcome everyone back to Cult Cinema Cavalcade. And greetings to newcomers listening to the show. I'd also like to welcome back our guest and now a member of the Three Timers Club. Is that a thing for us calling the Three Timers Club? Sure, why not? All right. The legendary Jim Dietz. Well, thank you. Uh, Three Timers Club. I'm very, very honored. Mm-hmm. Very, and, very... and we have a surprise guest, too. That's right. Yes. Out from the curtains, Mrs. James Michael Dietz. <laughs> Melanie Ivankovich Dietz. Surprise! Yeah, I'm Melanie. I'm uh, James's lovely, lo- lovely wife. It's truly she, an honor. She's the cha- she's the Charlie to my Paul. I am. <laughs> and you're both here because you're both huge Dune fans. We just have this weird affection for this movie. I swear, it's like the best worst movie what? <laughs> that you'll ever see. What and have I you said, seen? Roadhouse. <laughs> uh, I've seen. Oh, I've seen Roadhouse, and believe me, I know. I know from bad movies, um, but. I mean, this, I mean, there's so many, I, I don't know, even know where to start, you know. I mean, there, there's David Lynch, he's coming off of his Oscar win for Elephant Man. 
you know, he's got the money of Dino De Laurentiis and the House of Laurentiis behind him to make this huge, big budget epic of Dune, this like really inscrutable book. And it's just, it's just a beautiful mess. I love it. I, I, as I said before the show, I defy anyone to find one line of dialogue in this whole movie that sounds like natural speech. I mean, it's just, oh, it no. isn't there. It isn't there. I mean, and I mean, even like, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, tender, when it should be tender moments, like between uh, uh, Comic Lachlan and Sean Moore Young, it's like, tell me of your home world, Usul. Like, <laughs> it's almost like the, the, the kind of theatrical speech they used in like 30s movies and 40s movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the production values are insane. And I mean, even the costume design and, and the cast, oh my God, you know, I mean, it's just like, like I said, it's, it's the best, worst movie that I can think of it and I love it. It's like it's like the the slow uncle that's always you're always kind to in the family. <laughs> and, 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 and Jim, you know, I feel bad but like maybe when you get to like the five timers club or something we'll let you uh pick the movie to discuss on the show. But I like when I created Cult Cinema Cavalcade, I had movies with Dash Jim Dietz next to them. This is one of them. <laughs> this is one of them. And like the Apple was another. It's just like, yeah, I've got I was like, oh we'll get Jim on that Apple one, that one. So <laughs> We didn't discuss who was going to be on this episode, but when Brandon said we were doing Dune, I was like, oh, that means Jim's going to be on it. I knew immediately. (laughs) See, I'm I'm glad that you have this female perspective because I appreciate, you know, David Lynch, Alter, all these interesting things. If you're a sci-fi fan, of course, you're into Frank Herbert, blah, blah, blah. I came to this movie because it was the 80s and Sting was in it. Oh, there you go. Yes, I, I sat through a heck of a lot of movie to see, you know, a, a steamy sting. Now, I feel like with, <laughs> with, with Sting in this movie, we'll, we'll talk about Sting now. That's fine, because it's casting. I feel like they were trying to, like, oh, someone, you know, made Bowie a movie star. Someone made Rucker Hour a movie star. Let's, let's do it with Sting. Because it feels like they're trying to introduce him in a way they introduce those two into, like, big mainstream movies. Like, this feels like, uh, you know, Blade Runner... Oh, and this totally like, killed that career, like yeah, immediately. Like, this movie, this movie, like put the nail in the coffin of Sting's movie career. I mean, he was in Brimstone and Treacle. He was in Quadrophenia. He was in a couple other movies before this. But like this yeah. was, like you said, they were trying to make a big, like bigger star of him. Like Bowie made a lot of films in the eighties, mm-hmm. as you said, and this movie killed his career as a movie but, actor. Anyway. But the credits at the end are so haphazard when they show Sting. It's like they. They kind of caught him unawares, like, <laughs> like this little. Yeah. All oh, right, the credit sequence where they all show like the part, the portrait shot of each character. Yeah. <laughs> this oh, is so bad. That sequence that and... should have been at the beginning of the film for help. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Like, you could have put this two hours earlier. Maybe I could have. Like what they like the old school TV shows, like, like Flipper or something, to be like so and so and Flipper. But they did it with every like. You know, sometimes they'll do like the main cast and a couple supporting. This was everybody, so I'm like, why yeah. wasn't this at the beginning with a little short like sentence of who they are? Like you know. So they, instead, they started with, "I'm the Princess Erland, and here's about 20 minutes of exposition for you." Right. <laughs> so that character that isn't in the movie until the last 20 minutes. Of the I movie? know. <laughs> well, in the extended version, which is what six hours long, I think. No. Um, were the be- were the credits in the beginning for that part, for that one? Or did it no it up in the editing? That one they they made a television version where they extended the film, which Lynch took his name off of, and had the the writer was uh, like Judas Booth because he 
because you know he felt like he was betrayed by the studios and they killed his film. So if you put those two names together, that's what you get. And then right. he it was an Alan Smithy film on television. But they added instead of I, I texted about calling this today. I'm like you know someone was telling us once that they preferred that version. But I'm like I would rather look and listen to a Virginia Madsen in her prime giving me some confusing stuff for like five minutes as opposed to some guy with charts and sh- stuff for twenty. Oh yeah, it's all like, it's all it like is, uh, oh. it's all this like art that would have really had a good home on a '70s sci-fi paperback cover, right? And, and like slow pans across the art as this guy in a very low and studious voice gives expositions about the living computers from ten thousand years ago. Please and, like, turn, all please turn the tape to no side B. Whatsoever on the story. Yeah. Now, okay. Let's let's go back here. Now, I want to like remind our audience stuff. We're here to discuss. David Lynch's Dune. But in order to do that, we got to go a little bit back to where we came from on this. And it starts with the novel by Frank Herbert. Now, Cullen and myself decided we were going to be for this one. Well, let's go back. Let's go read that book. Let's go read Dune. I read it in high school. I read it in high school. I don't remember much from reading it. And uh, we both tried and fantastically failed at doing this. I, I tried to listen to the audio book. And uh, you know, I, I downloaded it. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I got six hours into it. Yeah, I. And then I, then I stopped. I got in. I, I started reading it one day. I got like ten pages in. I was, you know, during the day, which is a bad time for someone with me, like kids, to read. And, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this like later on when I got some quiet time. And just time didn't allow me to read Dune before this. And it's a very heavy book right from the beginning. Like I said, I I got six hours into it. The the total amount of audiobook time was 21 hours. I did not have 21 hours to spend to listen to this thing. But I felt kind of, you know, not great about it. So I I asked my brother about Dune because he really likes Dune. Like, he's one of those people that recorded it on TV when it was over two nights. You know, like the TV version. Mm. So he, he was into Dune, and I asked him, if he understood Dune the first time he read it, and he said no, he was glad he watched the movie first. <laughs> now, uh, Jim and Melanie, did you guys see it theatrically when it first came out? No. It, no? No. I did. I saw it. I remember it was a Christmas release. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the big Christmas release. It was like that, and you reminded me today that Yeah, Starman Star opened the same weekend. Yeah, the same weekend, that Christmas of 84. And it was supposed to be like the big marquee Christmas release that year, like the big you know, blockbuster. And, of course, it went over like a lead balloon uh, commercially. <laughs> hey, kids, uh, want to go watch Dune for Christmas? Actually, one of the, it, it was odd for me because I, I, I liked the movie and I read the book when I was a kid. And then there were a series of video games or computer games, I guess. Mm-hmm. They were on like the Apple II, like back in the day. Uh, Dune 2000 and everything. I learned a lot of like the... You know, Dune Cannon or whatever from playing those. Yeah, so. I I was I was brought to it by when it, it aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. It was like a big deal in the early mid '90s. It aired on the Sci-Fi Channel, and I record. I'm like, oh, what's this? And I I was just like kind of lost about it, but I kept going to it. I had I record on VHS, and I kept watching it like I was going to discover something I didn't notice before. And I read <laughs> then I read the book. That's what that's what inspired me to read the book for it. I, and I was like, I'm going to read the other books. Never read the other books my my brother said that he read some of the books and he only understood about half of it and he liked them this yeah. was an interesting intersect for me though this movie this is about the time i was starting to become a film geek 
Mm-hmm. And I'd already been like a sci-fi geek. So I'd read the book like earlier on. And uh, then I was starting to get into film like directors, you know, that, like, yeah. like Carpenter and Cronenberg and, and David Lynch. You know, I'd seen Eraserhead as a midnight movie at like 11 or 12 years old. And uh, uh, of course, Elephant Man was incredible. And so I was a big fan of him. And I was going in thinking, you know, well, this is the best of both. This is like the chocolate peanut butter equation, right? I have... You know, one of my this really cool director with this really you know great sci-fi property, it should be awesome. Yeah, and <laughs> the, it, it took. I mean, dude, unfortunately, <laughs> in the 1960s, it, it was the book, right? And it, you know, won those awards. And then it, it's by 71, it was optioned for film by oh, Alejandro yeah, Jodorowsky. Yeah. And we're not going to cover all of Jodorowsky's deal with it. There's a fantastic film called Jodorowsky's Dune. Maybe the best thing to come of Dune is this documentary about a Dune film <laughs> that never happened. Because I just want them to release those Mobius uh, storyboards. They said there are like three thousand of them. I want them to make an animated feature based on it. I think some. Yeah, that'd be great. There's great they stories in that. They had sequences in that documentary that were animated yeah. from storyboards that were just fine. You and know? he had this wild trip, but through Yodorowsky's Dune, like it inspires sci-fi stuff to finish out the 70s and 80s because Dan O'Bannon would come work on that and he met H.R. Giger there and we know the work of H.R. Giger inspires Alien and and things like that. Um, Star Wars gets a little bit from Yodorowsky's Dune even though George Lucas says no. Tangerine Dream. Friedkin yeah. ends up using them in Sorcerer like understanding like the importance of the synth music that hadn't lifted off yet. But tons of stuff. And he had great ideas like each was it like each house was going to have like a different Completely different look and right. completely different and, score every time you were there. And a different band on the score. I think yeah, like Pink Floyd like, was on there. Right. Pink yeah. Floyd was supposed to be like the Imperial Planet and then Tangerine Dream was going to be the Harkonnens. Mm-hmm. Like the, like you said, the production artists from that, a lot of them ended up in Lucasfilm or um, working on Blade Runner. Um, so yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, Sid Mead. It's going to be – a lot of the movie was going to be like a big acid trip. It was going to be like really long. But you know what? I want to see some tackle it. I always am fascinated yeah. by – Films that never got off the ground, like just to see what it could have turned out to be, even bad or good, it's fascinating. So Yodorowsky spends many years on a film that just doesn't ever happen, and then it gets picked up. Like Dino De Laurentiis buys the rights in '78, and then has to renew them and get this to the, get the sequels and stuff. And he brings on Ridley Scott, who leaves it to go do Blade Runner, and then David Lynch comes on. And David Lynch is going to write and direct, and he spends a lot of time. And he's coming off the Elephant Man, which he was got, he was offered, you know, he's offered to do Return of the Jedi as well. But <laughs> David Lynch's it, Return of the Jedi, yeah, which, which I think oh I'd like think, to go to the alternate universe to go watch that where you know that exists. I'm pretty sure the reason he chooses Dune over that is because he gets to write Dune, and he wasn't going to get to write Return of the Jedi. And this movie was supposed to be like the next big thing. It was one of the the series of the next big sci-fi fantasy epic that was supposed to... And this was coming the year after Star Wars was done, so they were really looking for that. And then this did not become that and was reviled. Roger Ebert called it the worst movie of the year. The reviews that uh, Siskel and Ebert gave for uh, this movie is a poetry of hate. It is fantastic how much they did not like this movie. It's almost up there with their reviews of slasher films of the 80s. Right. Mm -hmm. It, it was it was nominated for an Oscar though for for best sound. Any Oscar it was going to get in a technical field, I, I'll stand behind it. Yeah, I'll stand the behind that. The soundtrack is good. 
the, I think the, what's amazing about it is like so much in this movie would have been done in CGI if they had made it now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those sets, that giant castle set that they're in, and yet it was all made practically. I mean, those are all like props. I know? was they're I was impressed. It, most of it, I'd say about ninety percent of this movie holds up strong with its effects, sets, and mat mat work. Yeah. Yeah, it cost a lot of money to make at the time, but it, a lot. I mean, you it's all it. on the you, screen. Yeah, it's you all see there. it. You know, I mean, you see all those costumes and all those giant set pieces, and that's the other another thing I love about this movie is just how lavish it really is. Like, I mean, down to the design of the the uniforms and stuff, and you know the the weird the weird ass uh, uh, instrument that Captain Picard carries around. Right. It's all these like weird <laughs> and details, never plays. you know, and never plays right. The, the robot that he fights at the beginning, the training robot that he utterly blows up. I'm wondering, does he blow it up every time? But, like, I mean, all these, like, <laughs> tiny details and this, like, weird, like, Art Nouveau, Art Deco-looking style to it. It just, it's kind of amazing. Like I said, if they made it now, all that would have been CGI'd. And it wouldn't feel genuine. Some... No, it, would, like, it really wouldn't. Like 40s giant soundstage kind of films. At the beginning, when the, the guild arrives... To the, see the emperor, and there's a shot of their ship parked, and they're all exiting it, and there's stuff down there. I was just like, "Wow, that looks really damn good." And a lot of movies that were trying to capture the magic of the model work and stuff of Star Wars just they couldn't do it. You see the strings every time. This movie probably did it best. Yeah, when I saw them walking out of that ship, I thought, "All right, we got we got a real movie here. This is yeah." Because I was I was dreading watching this a little bit, but when I saw them walk out of that ship, I was like, "Okay, this looks." Uh, it's got I don't know about depth or anything, but it looks it just looks good. Like it was a, yeah. a feast for the eyes immediately. But then you realize that they're rolling out a giant tank with a a scrotum yeah. with a with that speaks with a smoking vagina at the bottom. Yes. To to come talk to Jose Ferrer while covered you know, in razor burns. While fifteen dudes wearing you know black trench coats and trash bags come in with shop vacs around right. him. All and right. One of them, for some reason, has a giant radio antenna uh, or microphone from the forties. Well, let's all right. Let's let's <laughs> let's just get into this movie then. The beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year ten thousand one ninety one. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. It opens with space. And then the lovely Virginia Madsen, who plays a character that this is the most we get from her. It's like this she's is almost all of her dialogue. She's highly, does she even does she even speak in the rest of the movie? I don't think she does. She says like a couple words to her father at one point uh, early on in the movie. Like he's like, "Get out of here!" And she's like, "Huh? What?" And then that's about it. She yeah, has she, she has more dialogue a... at the very beginning of this movie than I think Patrick Stewart does the entire movie, and he's an important or supposed to be an important character. And it, she tells us it's the year ten thousand one ninety one. So change your calendars. AG, which is after Guild. I'm going to read you from the Dune uh, Wikipedia page because this Perfect. portion, I was like, I someone's written this down. I'm not trying to make the branded version of it. Well, you're not the only one that needed help on this because oh, yeah. when this movie came out, 
in theaters, they ha- some theaters handed out pamphlets to people. Cheat sheets, to, yes. Yeah, to explain what the fuck the movie was about. Which I- everything about this, I should say everything, but there are multiple attempts for people to understand what the hell is going on in the movie before they even watch it. You look at the poster for this movie, you know, most posters, they got a couple of taglines and then the title and there's pictures. And great, it's a poster. This has got like a fucking paragraph on there to explain what the hell June is. Well, also, Not a great omen. The problem originates from the book because I don't know. Did Herbert plan on this being a series when he wrote the first Dune? I don't have no idea. I have no idea. Because but, I, I, but it's like it, the perils of when you take any really dense literary property and try to put it into like a two or three hour movie. Yeah. You, I mean, especially something like this where you're setting up a whole, not only universe, but social system, class system, government, you know, well, uh, everything it, else. I mean, my problem with the book, too, is it has an appendix, mm-hmm. multiple appendixes at the back of the book. And I'm like, you know, your book like should cover book. this. I shouldn't have to go looking in the back for things. Like, <laughs> a good book should not have. <laughs> maybe a sequel. Maybe your sequel book has an appendix to refer to things, uh, exact events and stuff in the previous books. I'll give that a pass. But the first book in your series having an appendix like that, come on. <laughs> and there, that begins the problems for this movie and and adapting it, which makes it so hard. And, and, the, and the, the hardest part is, I mean, not only does she drop all this exposition on you, there's like a scene with the emperor, like we'll get to with the guild thing, and then there's more exposition it's with all Paul like, looking at his computer explaining, you know, fly to Caladan, water, see also storms, you know, but... Yeah, we need all, well, like, she tells us, the known universe, a sprawling feudal intergalactic empire, is ruled by Padishah Emperor Shaddam Corino IV. Mm-hmm. Well, how about Bill, sure. Emperor Steve? Uh, in, the, in this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange, which extends life, expands consciousness, and is vital to space travel. The powerful spacing guild and its navigators use the orange spice to fold space to travel to any part of the universe without moving. How is that the simplest concept I got from that? Oh, like, oh, folding... Like, I guess since we've been through Interstellar and all these movies talking about, like, wormholes and they explain it by folding a paper, that I guess now in in modern day, I'm like, oh, yeah, that... Oh, I know what that is. That's... Yes, you know, the like, concept how, of, of theoretical space travel is one of the easier things to comprehend yeah. in this movie. Here's so, my bowl. Please fill it with word soup. Thank yes. you. So <laughs> we, get, we go even further. There's four planets that draw the attention of the Spacing Guild. Arrakis, a desert planet and only source of, in the universe of spice, which he, uh, they also go, oh, it's also called Dune. Just call it Dune. Planet Dune. (laughs) Caladan, the the home of the House of Atreides. Giddy Prime, House of the Harkonnen. And Kaitan, home of Emperor Shaddam IV. There's all these names, and they're not, like, easy names. But here's the thing. But Star Wars has these names. Star Wars doesn't throw them at you within the first five minutes. And I'll tell you what, when I watch watch A New Hope, never mention Tatooine as a name in that. You hear most Eisley. Yep. But Tatooine, I think you find out when you read the storybooks, or in Empire when they say it, they There's, say at the end of end of that. But there are ways to put someone in an alien world and just kind of give everything out by context clues, you know. But this is in this movie, the book is ten times worse because mm-hmm. there's like a whole other stuff that isn't didn't even make the movie. The that's why the that's I got ten book. pages in and I go close. I'll get to that later. Like I can't sit and reread paragraphs. Right. And it's, yeah, it like, think how simple Star Wars, yeah, 
like, how will, how did a name like Boba Fett become common knowledge? Because there weren't, like, Jujumon, blah, 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 blah. If you wanted to know the other bounty hunters, you had to read the story. Uh, you had to do it on your own. Like the, the, well, I mean, they just kind of threw you in that universe, and you kind of figured everything out as you went along. R two D two. It reminded me because of the density of it all that it's like a it's like a Russian novel in space. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. where you do have all these familial ties, and you're expected to understand what the structure of all these families are, and this, you know, that over decades and in this case, you know, millennia space time. Well, it's I almost, kind of appreciate. I really appreciate that. This, that kind of thing can work for like a a mini series or a television show. Like Game of Thrones has a lot of this kind of stuff, where it's like who's with who and what's his name and his name's close to that name. Like, but you get you get a week to to let it boil. You get another episode. You get this. This is two hours seventeen minutes, and we <laughs> need we need to hurry. <sighs> On the planet of Kaitan, the Emperor is greeted by a giant aquarium with a slug creature with a vagina for a mouth, like Jim had said. <laughs> and guys that look like maybe Dark City ripped them off. Yeah. They th- <laughs> Even the sets kind of look like Dark City, too. <laughs> they talk to the Emperor about, like, hey, what's we want to know what's going on here because they're worried about the spice. <laughs> yeah, look. So apparently will be saying a lot during this movie. Right. Can the, you explain the plot to us? Thanks. The Emperor is, is <laughs> in the bit middle of forcing a feud between the Harkonnens and the Atreides because... He's fearing a weapon that the Duke Leto is making with sound. So he's having them take over Arrakis to piss off that, because that'll piss off the Harkonnens, and then they'll fight, and then hopefully Duke Leto dies. But they're like, oh, the guild's like, no, 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 kill his son. Do it, everybody. Just just kill his son, please. Meanwhile, you get a lot of shots of, of Sean Phillips, like kind of just staring intently with her half bald yeah. head. Like, kind of with her yeah. fingers at her temple, right. just kind of looking off in the middle distance. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and just, this beginning, I'm. it gets better, but this movie really slaps you in the face hard in its yeah. first act, maybe even. it's It, it never stops. It, it's a, it's an abusive relationship. I think it, it stops. A, I think it, it's not. It's, uh, it, it does. This kid movie gets it, it, much easier to follow when you just, when it quits worrying about you needing to know it, stuff. Eventually, yeah. it stops hitting you with a closed fist. That's what the movie does. I mean, it, it starts getting to a point where it's like, I don't need to know this. I don't need it. Like, once you figure out what's important and what's not, I mean, this movie immediately says, hey, get your notepad out. You need to know all this. And then when you start getting through it, you're like, all right, don't need it. Yeah, it's it like, kind of reminds me of the um, the, the studio's cut of uh, uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Mm-hmm. Where they like have to over they inserted like all these computer screen scenes that over explain everything in, in Brazil, you know, in the movie, in that world. Whereas you should just watch the movie and be like, oh, okay, well, that's that, you know. Instead, this but one they, inserts voiceovers with people talking like this because you don't, if you, if you talk loud enough in your head, people might hear you. <laughs> God. But I, I was like, wait, are they is- telepathically talking to each other? No, nope, nope. They're talking to themselves, or like yep, interior. That's the interior monologue. <laughs> that was that was the thing I hated the most about this movie was yeah. just the the occasional internal dialogues that would happen. So, and but, would, but some of it's so funny though, man. It's like oh, it's so, the the worms, the spice, yes. the dirt connection. You know, <laughs> yeah. End of scene. 
Yeah. There were so many scenes where someone was whispering in their head to themselves, and then the scene just ended. Like, all right, do we need to know what they're thinking? Can't they just make a gesture or raise an eyebrow as if to say, hmm, something's up here? That would be enough! I think think this movie would work a heck of a lot better if I'm thrown, you dump the exposition at the beginning and I'm thrown in a little bit lost and trying to figure things out because maybe then, because yeah, you already have my brain on overload and I don't want to add anything to it when this movie, when you break it down, it didn't have to be this complicated. Like you can, you can tighten and simplify this story and it also, it would help if the movie picked a side and pick it does pick the side but the side doesn't show up for an hour but it'd be nice an hour of setup for a two-hour movie because there's it tries to we have to establish how evil the harkonnens are too don't we right yeah the harkonnens are barely fucking shown in that first hour (laughs) i know but we have to establish they're bad they're bad they show up twice and they don't do any well i guess there is they don't do that much until the the actual attack that happens in the movie Paul Atreides, we see him getting exposition from a different source than we get. And, and the, by the way, I just got to say, most useless computer of all time. <laughs> it's like weather, right. sea storms, no rain on Arrakis. <laughs> I'm like, that's it. Wow, your internet is really, really sucks on your planet, dude. Is that all you got? We're then introduced to uh, Gertie, Dr. Yui, and Hawat, who come in, and we have shield practice, which is... I always thought it was cool. I don't know why, but I always thought it was kind of cool. Well, well, in, you mean when they turn into Minecraft characters? Yes. It's funny because um, this is one of the quotes that we always uh, say around the house, my wife and I. It's, it's, uh, he's like... Uh, Shield practice. Shield practice? Gurney, we had practice this morning. I'm not in the mood. Not in the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle and love play, not fighting. <laughs> I, I just the, the dialogue of this movie is just like so. I hope that's how you proposed. No, no, <laughs> I, I thought about it, but, you know, but instead, you know, my water shall become your water. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then you both drink from the uh, water of life, right? The water yeah. of life. The water, it. man, yummy. <laughs> but I mean, like, he just I mean, keeps out. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you have Patrick Stewart here before before Star Trek, you know, before a lot of people have seen him. Before Life I mean, Force. Joined... Yeah, or Life Force. <laughs> but I think I'd seen, only seen him in Excalibur other than this at this mm-hmm. point. And Freddie Jones is like this, you know, legendary British character actor who's been in a million jillion things. And then you have Dean Stockwell. Mm-hmm. I mean, Who, who this, worked with Lynch cat, quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, oh yeah, he worked with Lynch a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just this cast is incredible. I mean, you have mm-hmm. like you know, Linda Hunt coming off the Killing Fields win on the Oscar. You have uh, Jurgen Prochnow, you know, from Dust, fresh from Dust Boot. I mean, some of the best European and, and, and uh, British and American actors. I mean, really came in for this, you know. It, and it really it's just amazing. Getting it's into... amazing to see these actors and this great talent with this dialogue that is just. Well, everybody's in. A... Here's the thing, though. Everybody gives it a hundred percent. Everybody believes in this movie. Like there's oh, yeah. no there's no performance that's like oh fuck this I mean everybody is everybody's yeah, they're on they're saying absolute nonsense but it doesn't feel stiff or un uh, unorganic I mean the the dialogue is unorganic but they don't make it sound that way yeah no one no one looks weird spewing this out they actually they look committed but you're just like what are they saying 
Yeah, it's like the most most unnatural speech you will ever hear in a movie. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, so there's talk about worms. We learned that the Fremen, who we were told about on uh, Arrakis, their little group that's hidden within, uh, they have blue within Fremen. blue eyes. Uh, the Hawat uh, activates a fighter for Paul to fight, and it's some sort of, like, totem pole with, like, stabby <laughs> things. And he gets in a, a white suit and has a gun activated by his uh, vibrations and hummings. And They don't really explain that. No. Right? Yeah. No. no. It, it's just him... It's just him with the little black device on his hand dancing around a tube with spears shooting out of it. Well, we were, no, yeah, we're yeah, told I'm that just wondering, like, they, he blows the hell out of it, too. It's like, do they have a sure. new one every time? They have a whole bunch of these totem poles sitting around. Uh, it's, and he's like, you know, bring out the trainer. Like, you know, there's something he does every day. I'm just like, Paul, after his little training session, says bye to his friend Duncan, who's already headed to Arrakis. Paul and his the father. The bigs of this movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Paul and his father then stare out. His dad tells him he's proud of him and that the the sleeper must awaken. Paul then dreams about water, Sting telling him he wants to kill him, an open hand, a second moon, and Sean Young. The Reverend Mother comes and she's mad at Paul's mom, Lady Jessica, who is not married to his father. Concubine. Okay. Mm -hmm. She's mad at him for having a boy and not a girl. And uh, they could have merged the Harkonnens and Atreides with a marriage. So, yeah, she's she's mad that Paul's mom has thought she gave birth to the chosen one slash super being. Paul's dad, then we, we see he has this ring that they want us to focus on. Uh, the Reverend Mother tests Paul <laughs> with some... I love how you say, like, it's supposed to be important. I don't know. The, the, cam- <laughs> the camera chose to... Fo- they show it later. <laughs> the camera showed that more than his face. I yeah. It's a big-ass ring, too. It's huge. The Reverend Mother then tests Paul with some creepy voice called The Voice. God, Why can't they have more things that simple? Like, okay, I get it. There's The Voice. She's using The Voice. Everything else in this, she's using the Makadaka Chica. And you're like, what? But this is just simple. She makes him put his hand in a box... And she forces him to keep it in there with the the Gamja bar. So we go from the voice to the Gamja bar, which is a pointy thing on her finger. And if he removes his hand from the box, he dies. And he sees his hand burning in the box and feels it. And then she stops the test and says that no one has ever withstood that much and tells him of the Ben Sisterhood's prophecy. Paul worries about his father when his mother comes in the room, but they can't tell him anything about it. For the father, nothing. At the House of Harkonnen, we meet Brad Dorf playing Peter Demarise and Baron Harkonnen. I have enlightened your nephews concerning my plan. My plan! The plan to crush the Atreides. I never got this from this scene until I read about it. Apparently he has AIDS face. That's what Uh, a lot of gay rights groups claim. Like, oh, he's got, because you know, AIDS was a was a was an up and coming disease back in '84. So they immediately said, you know, well, he's he's this only gay character has AIDS, and that's offensive. And I didn't I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't this. think of him as being gay. I just thought he was a. The jerk. only time I got him as gay is when he said something about Sting later in the movie, not this scene. That is the scene in question, which is this big controversy homophobic scene when that when the young kai comes in to give the flower and then he goes over 
I didn't think he had sex with him. I thought he drank his blood or killed yeah, him or something. Yeah, he, like, well, he rips that tube out of him. Yeah. He just killed him. He's like, he's he's having pleasure from taking his life. Yeah, I didn't, right. I didn't see so It's any... like a vampiric thing. I didn't get gay out of it either. I didn't get anything out of it. Like, this was this big scene in question. I was like, the hell? I was like, I never, I mean, it even was... knowing it, watching it, I, I was like, someone's stretching here. Someone in, yeah. like, modern times is stretching here or something. But he's he's getting his zits popped when we are introduced to him. And Jack right. Nance is standing by him. Jack Nance is playing squeeze box off to the side. Queen he's box. got, like, this weird box and he's, like, turning knobs and making noise. And I, I, I got lazy with my notes, so I, I, I wasn't paying attention to names. So I called him Sting and Chubby Sting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good enough. Good yeah. And they came in and they're his... They're the Baron's nephews, and we get the classic line, he who controls the spice controls the universe. The Baron says he has someone very close to the Duke who will betray the uh, betray the Atreides. Oh, how cute. Well done, Brandon. He laughs and begins floating around and then gets oil on himself. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck was that? And as I, I that was either. So you know, then, that was the David Lynch peeking through. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's parts of this that are just weird as fuck, and that's the David Lynch peeking through in this movie. You know what I mean? Like well, when he brings like, the hey, cat hey, in. Just, or, I'm sorry. Say like, hey, this scene isn't gross enough. Let's put more goop on him. Like you almost expect someone to come into the scene and blow their nose on him. He's just just most just fucking disc- Who do you think's grosser looking in this movie, him or vagina worm monster? Him. I don't mean. I mean <laughs> like the ones that are like living in the smoke with a. That shit, that gross thing. Yeah, I think, yeah. Him, I think him just because they zoom in on him, like, uh, and the guy's making a little poem as he's uh, p- picking his zits, you know, circling oh. around, nice and neat. I'm just like, wow, that's David Lynch peeking through there for I sure. But... The, and the thing, to every every boil on your face is a pleasure to me. What is it? Oh yeah, he's like every every boil on your face is a every pleasure for me to to lance my lord. You know, I'm just like. Ugh. So as we mentioned, to us he kills this kid, but to some he sexually assaults him. Then we go to the Atreides. They leave Caladan for Arrakis. Jessica has a memory of being upset about leaving while in bed with Duke Leto. They fly to some cylinder in, in space where one of the slug vagina mouth things folds space so they can travel without moving. <laughs> is, it, is it ever explained what is? what that is it's not is it no but i think it just, just a, i think it holds them all in place space, so they yeah, yeah it, it's something yeah. to keep their ship from damaging or something while they fold well, space i that's what i took it as like even just what that fucking thing is called or what it i mean i understand it's folding space i'm on board there that made sense well, to me but as far you know, as what the fuck that over is, over time that the spice you know mutated vagina guy hmm. right okay uh, okay <laughs> I we, will, we I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> you have no reason to lie. I don't remember that happening at all. It was just like, oh, we found this fucking weird thing that's got a brain and a smoking pussy and and arms. So here it is, and it can travel through space. Fucking what? <laughs> the rival Arrakis, a woman with blue eyes. She's one of the Reverend Mothers, I guess. Believes their chosen one has arrived randomly. That he'll bring him out of darkness. So then we go back to the Atreides, and they arrive at Castle, and we're told that security is doubled because the Harkonnens likely left suicide troops uh, on site. And then Duncan's back, 
and he informs uh, Duke Leto that the Fremen would be strong allies. They have vast numbers, and they control Arrakis. We learn about water conservation for a little bit and see the house shield activate. Uh, We then meet up back with uh, Gurney, Patrick Stewart, and meet Dr. Kynes, played by Max von Sydow. They, they meet with Paul and the Duke for a spice mining inspection. There's still a strong Harkonnen presence, they're told, but those guys are being removed. And he's not a Fremen, but he's been on the planet so long his eyes have changed. And then they go over the suits that they wear. They have a water and breathing apparatuses on them. Because it never rains on Dune or Arrakis, but we're calling it Dune because it's easier. He is uh, impressed with how Paul wears his suit. Your fashion girls desert style. <laughs> uh, which Max von Sydow is on record having said that it was the most uncomfortable costume he's ever worn, but he liked it because his body looked great in it. They're good-looking suits. Some guys at a command station translate some Harkonnen signal while they're gone. Uh, Dr. Yui is doing some analysis on a body, and Hawat checks in on him. The Atreides and uh, Max von Sydow fly to the spice mining area and they spot a worm as they fly over or think one's coming with worm sign by the way there's a cameo by david, yeah, david lynch, lynch yes he's the uh mining facility he's, man they're radioing yeah. in with by the way did anyone else find it weird that when they were flying out to the desert they were apparently in a victorian time machine yep. like the, the, yes. the way that thing looked it looked like nothing else in the movie it looked like a tea caddy or something it didn't look, yeah it didn't look like a ship of any kind really it was like leftover from like a 60s movie. It's like, well, we've got the set. Let's use it. Something's noticed that's wrong. And the Duke advises the miners to leave. And they begin running from their little vehicle and get on their ship as the worms attack. And then Paul, at this time, it, Paul, like one of them bumps Paul coming in. And Paul says, in his, <laughs> it is, it is head, he's like, pure unrefined spice on his fingers. Uh huh. He puts his hand up to his mouth yeah. like the. He's giving himself like, uh, like he's just seeing if he farted or something. Dr. Kynes realized. He's not concerned over his pain and spice. I must admit, I can store better judgment. I like this Duke. Jessica inspects the servants with uh, Dr. Yui in case the Harkonnens had done something to them. And she notices Yui's keeping something from her. It's all in her monologue. A little woman in, uh, thinks to herself, Wondering where her son is. We hear it in her head, right? Yep, it's in her head. This Most of the Thank scene goodness. is in her head. And in his room that night, Paul eats spice and has a vision of the Reverend Mother laughing, water, the second moon, hearing the sleeper must awaken, and a hand. And it says, <laughs> I have one. A hunter scene. Very David Lynch. Uh, yeah. a, a little thing above his bed opens, and a hunter seeker, which is basically a floating needle, enters his room so he stays still to keep it from noticing him and then the door opens but paul grabs the needle midair and smashes it into the wall as it flies towards the door and at the door is the housekeeper which is the short woman with uh, plenty of inner monologue from before shout out mapes uh she she tells paul that there is a traitor among them but she she i know who it is now this whole scene with like the hunter killer or whatever when it's like the again with the interior monologue there's like no music just Kyle McLaughlin's voice and this little whir from this is like, I must stand perfectly still. It will seek me out and kill me. And the <laughs> POV like... shot that looks right at him, 
but it, yeah. and we learned that these are controlled mm-hmm. by other people. It's like they can't see up. They can't. Well, it was a. Apparently, the room was dark. Yeah. <laughs> even though it was perfectly well lit for us to see everything that happens in it. Yeah. Right. A Harkonnen is found dead in a cavern. Hawat tells them, with the shield up, they're impenetrable. And then Paul sleeps uh, that night as the Baron approaches. Duke uh, Leto has thoughts that he should have married Jessica. I love that he's like, oh, I should have married her. Like, it's a little fucking, who fucking cares, man? (laughs) At this point, you could have said that you were married to her. We wouldn't have fucking known different. That's when I was like, wait, they're not married? At this point, I was like, wait, wait, wait. They're not married? And and he waits till their son is like 18 or whatever to think this. Yeah. Hey, maybe we should get married now. So he finds the housekeeper choking and dying in the hallway and is hit with a hunter seeker by Yui, who has sabotaged the house generators, uh, leaving them open for Harkonnen attack. So Yui is the guy who betrayed them, but he says he's doing it because he wants to kill the Baron. So by having Leto dying close to the Baron, who will gloat to his face... He wants to use a poison gas tooth. The tooth. A thousand deaths are not enough for Yui. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he doesn't. Ju- that uh, Doctor Huey doesn't just want to kill the Baron. He says, "I wishes to. I, I, I wish to kill a man." Yes. Uh, again, <laughs> more of that dialogue. It's like no one fucking talks like that. Even in the year ten thousand, no one talks like that. That's what's incredible about this movie. It's just, the dialogue <laughs> is just so insane. So he says, in return for this, you know, he'll save Paul and Jessica. Because, you know, he's like, L- L- Lito was a dead man anyway. He's like, you don't know that! <laughs> well, yeah, because you killed him, you dickhead! Sure he does. He, he's in on the plot of the Harkonnens now. And he knew what they were they were going to die. He, he knew that. So They won him over to their side. True. But but the shield's up. They wouldn't have been able to... Impe- it was impenetrable. Yeah! Yeah! <sighs> If you wouldn't have lowered the shield, they might have had a chance. So, Jerk. the Harkonnens launch this massive attack, which includes a Patrick Stewart raging into battle holding a pug. Yeah. <laughs> battle pug. Yeah. Amazing. Would, couldn't they have just tried? To, that's one thing I want explained. Why the fuck is he holding the dog? It's more diff- sensitive side. So, Jessica and Paul are tied up in front of the Baron, who spits on Jessica. I'm going to spit on you now. Just a little spit. He, he leaves Piger to kill them, who orders Jack Nance to take them to the desert to be eaten by worms so there is no evidence and the bodies are never found. Meanwhile, Duncan is like a badass for a moment, and then eventually like he puts shields on and like a spike gets thrown in his head. He I was, was like, oh, spit- Duncan, yeah, dude, this guy, oh. Biggs, oh no, Biggs. I mean, Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the point of a of a personal shield if it can't refl- stop anything? Like like earlier in the movie when Paul and Patrick the hell is his name? Journey when Patrick, yeah 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 when when they're fighting this you know he says oh you know a slow blade can make it through the shield okay cool great when Duncan dies it's, it's like a fucking bullet or spike whatever it goes right into his head. That's got to be going at a pretty high velocity. He's like, what the fuck is the point of this shield? Doesn't stop and all, it does is slow it, all it does is slow it down long enough so you can see it. Yeah. I'm going to answer that with the same with the question. You know, Why do the stormtroopers wear armor in Star Wars? And it's the same answer. It looks cool. Yeah. So, 
So the Baron then tells Yui that he's gonna he'll let him rejoin his wife, which means oh, Yui is killed. Surprise! Now on the ride to the desert, Jessica notices that Jessica notices yeah. that Yui has left them suits in the ship that he luckily. How do you know they were gonna take that ship? And how and do you how know they're gonna know that, drop them in the desert? How does she know they suits? Well, she sees them. How does he have time to emboss his uh, logo on everything? Yeah. Well, Am I, 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 Baron's signet ring. Why would it matter? Right. Yeah. So I, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Paul then begins to try the voice, and one of the goons then tries to grope his mother, and Paul uses the voice, and the guy takes off Jessica's gag, and she uses the voice. Release my son's bones. One guy kills the other one. She has a guy free Paul, who knows takes the guy out rather than kill him and takes control Paul takes control of the ship and you know what I'm thinking now like what happened to this guy yeah he crashes what happened to this guy like does he wake up in the desert like what happened like (laughs) so meanwhile once he hears Paul and Jessica have escaped Leto realizes that Yui has kept his word and remembers the doctor Yui what did he say Unfortunately, though, he uses the gas on Piter, not Baron. And then Jessica then senses a great disturbance as if one duke cried out. (laughs) So after they crash land, Jessica's upset. Paul says he's lost his feelings as if these cold people ever had them. To begin with in this movie. Uh, yeah, they were so emotional to begin just, with. I mean, yeah. Leto might have been the most emotional person in this movie, and he's dead. I was like, where are my feelings? I feel for no one. Like, yeah, I don't feel for anyone either in this movie, Paul. I'm glad you have the realization we had upon meeting you, Paul. Uh, I feel then for he, me that I have to sit through another hour and a half. Right. <laughs> oh, then he, he looks up and spots the second moon, and Paul has a vision of the navigator telling the emperor he wants him killed. And he doesn't know why, but thinks it has to do with the spice. Uh, And he says the moon holds his future. He again remembers the sleeper must awaken. And they will call him Moadib. He reveals he's holding his father's ring. Remember that one? I remember earlier in this one, I was like, hey, guys, you know, they focus on that ring. Paul Paul has it now. They're focusing on it. So just it's there. Uh, He tells his mother the spice is changing his consciousness and that she knew it all along and is pregnant with his sister. So he promises then he'll avenge his father. We see like a, ba- a baby doll soaking in jello. <laughs> right. oh. What do you call what do you call the mouse shadow of the second moon? <laughs> so Chubby Sting is busy torturing Max von Sydow and orders him to the desert. And Paul in the desert finds a plan for the uh, the weirding modules that Yui had left them. So yeah, it, 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 I didn't even know these had a name. I didn't know what the fuck a weirding module was. Like like when the when uh, the castle is getting attacked, there's a room that's full of these weirding modules that's on fire, and apparently that's a big deal. We never knew what the fuck that was before that point. We didn't know what it was when they were on fire. And, and now they're bringing it up again. Like, what the fuck are they? So, in the book, weirding is kung fu, right? And then they've changed it to this 
gun right. for the movie, which mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna side with Lynch. This is probably the better move. Yeah, I don't, I don't know with, if we with, dealt with Kyle McLaughlin doing kung fu and stuff. I don't know how that would have worked in here, or yeah. I mean, because this movie has a level. This is gonna sound really weird. As as bad as whatever everything is, it has a level of competency to it. Going with the the set designs, the performances, the costuming, oh, yeah. uh, that 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 little bit of trying to attempt this kung fu might have just thrown it all off. Like I don't know, I don't. I I I've got to side with Lynch in thinking well, I don't think the kung fu could have worked. And it's gonna be a lot easier to train an army of of warriors using a dev- these devices as opposed to teaching them these complicated kung fu moves but at the same time where the fuck are they getting these weirding modules yeah we'll get to that uh well, you know they have their fabrication uh uh and design center you know deep under the the uh yeah. <laughs> under the desert there didn't uh, you so paul yeah. paul plants what's called a thumper to attract the worms to it um and they so they can you know get away somewhere else but they end up getting chased by one anyway and they go to this cavern and hide, and then the worm like knocks over some shit, with, creates an avalanche. Paul falls, and then the worm leaves because it's attracted to a different thumper. Paul wonders if there's a relationship with the worm and the spice. The worm, spice, is there a relationship? In the caverns, Paul and Jessica run into a group of Fremen who appear threatening... Which they run from. Yeah, they when they first meet the uh, the Fremen, they kill the a couple Fremen. of them. Totally, then they're like totally cool with it. Like five minutes later. Well, no, they uh, remember they have to fight. Paul oh, right, they have to fight to prove themselves. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's right. then that yeah, and then the, his mom jumps out and holds somebody. Ca- Doesn't he kill Chani's dad or something? No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he does. Well, he, uh, he was probably dead weight anyway. They're probably yeah, just sure. looking for a way to get rid of him. They're like, oh, finally our chance. If, if, if strangers kill him, then we're all in the clear. But I, I remember thinking, like, how odd that he just killed her dad and look, now they're dating. Could see Sean Young personally making a choice like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know. I, I thought whole, Johnny had more sense. She had a, That whole scene was ad-libbed by her. They're led by Stilgar. And once everything settles down... They agree they should become an ally. And then Johnny, the girl from Paul's dreams, appears as one of these people. Paul tells him, them he wishes to be Paul Moadib going forward. He and his mother are welcomed as a part of them. As they go through the caverns, they see moisture traps and caches of water, which Stilgar says they have thousands. Only few know of all of them, but they will change the face of Arrakis with them. Tell me of your homeworld, Usul. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Baron floats around, madly celebrating since they are knee-deep in Atreides' blood. And he puts uh, Chubby Sting in charge of Arrakis and orders him to show no mercy. Meanwhile, Sting pops out in this little one-piece, which is like one of the most iconic things from this movie. Right, that that codpiece. The codpiece. The winged cod piece. Which, up until shooting, they have shooting, he was supposed to be nude. And Sting was okay with it. And they, producers flipped and made them put that piece on him. Now, this is the only part, like, the Baron seems kind of lusty about him right here. This is the only mm. bit yeah. of, yeah, like, he see, he of homosexuality. He seems more incestuous than gay. Yeah, it's like, yeah. 
this is the only part of that, but yeah, this is the sting coming out of this. It's like, oh, yeah, this cod piece and Bowie and, and Labyrinth can compete with one another for ridiculous. <laughs> fade, beautiful fade. Stilgar asks Jessica to be their reverend mother since theirs is too old. And thus a ritual happens for it where Jessica drinks the water of life. And then the old one dies as she passes on the knowledge. Like, how did that conversation go with the old reverend mother? Like, hey, we got this younger piece right here. Um, you're done. We know when you do this, you die. Sorry. It's <laughs> not like they're upgrading their computer. They're ending a life. Yeah. She Which... knows her fate. <laughs> Which, Well, I guess she can because she can see the future. So it's like, yeah. all right, it's Tuesday. It's time. Uh, the water of life causes the premature birth of Paul's sister, Aaliyah. Uh, Played by Alicia Witt. Alicia Witt's debut, which yeah. which Lynch would use again in the Twin Peaks TV show. Yep. Born with all the powers of a reverend mother. And we know this because the movie tells us. Yes, we have to be told this through expositional voiceovers. and Which now we're getting into, we have voice, we have... We have voiceovers that are people's thoughts and voiceovers that are exposition, narration. It's, yeah. You also have the voiceover over montage, too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like from this point on in the movie, it's clear that they chopped the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. Just to make this like a, like a, like two and a, two, uh, two fifteen or two seventeen or whatever it is. Yeah. The, the Baron, Sting, and a cat, uh, go to where they are torturing Hawat. <laughs> And they have a poison in him that he can only keep at bay by milking the cat. Yep. That has a mouse tape to it. That's not a euphemism either. That's the real, actually, what he has to do. Right. (laughs) They have, yeah, a hairless cat hooked up to a contraption that he has to to milk. And this is the only time it's ever mentioned. It's not brought brought up later. It's that, like, uh, important thing. It's like, oh, man, I've got to save Paul, but I have to milk this cat first. (laughs) No, is no. there in the book about this? I mean, why? I know. How I don't did know. that make the cut? Not in uh, yeah. the book. It's Toll Lynchian. Is this the last time we see Hawat too? Until the very end. Yeah, like milk this cat. End, the big, the big confrontation scene at the end. That's the last time you see. I Hawat. guess we we're supposed to see he's loyal and not gonna. You know, I. They, but they could have just had him chained up, and they could have said like, "You're gonna speak or tell us what happened." You know, just. They could have been something with it other than, like, you gotta milk a cat. <laughs> what? Your hot plug already. So, Shawnee and Paul are in love, guys. We have oh, to be great. told that right away. They like, met once. Why not? She was in his <laughs> dreams, I, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, and then we get a romantic scene with them. And then Paul addresses the holy warriors. Uh, Stilgar has asked them, asked him to teach them the weirding way to defeat the Harkonnens but also to destroy the spice because he who can destroy the thing controls can control the thing or is that yeah yeah just doesn't have a ring to it like he who controls the spice controls the universe <laughs> they believe arrakis will become the center of the universe like isn't it already if everyone's dependent on spice you would think paul then begins training with the fremen which includes an indestructible obelisk but paul has a weirding module uh, that we saw earlier. And this is the weirding way uh, where he's like, nah, and, you know, shoots. During this training, he realizes he must also conquer the worm. How does he realize sure. this? Uh, it's not important. He yes. just has to. 
He and the Fremen go out and attract a worm, the big one. And he manages to climb atop it and attaches a rope to steer. Uh, the other Fremen join him as the score gets really big and boisterous. Yeah, they go worm surfing. Go, Toto. It's it's really great that he got it right immediately. Like there, There's no, uh, no training or any kind of gradual in- increasing hey, of skill. He gets it right. He's born to it. He's the Kwisatz Haderach, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like putting on one of the still suits. I understand that. It's a, it's a giant fucking creature. It's ridiculous. And the worms the worms hold up in the effects. I mean, some of it's like rear projection, which, you know, with the advent of like Blu-ray and stuff, you can you can it's a bit a little more obvious, but I think the the scale of them still holds up. Like it doesn't fully look like models or little miniatures or anything like that. I think the scale of them actually works still. Yeah. I agree. Till Kevin Bacon finds them in holes. Ah. The 80s. Ah. Uh, the the Fremen now with like blood painted on their shoulders, their suits. Is that what they're yeah. putting on there? Or paint? paint? I'm not sure if it was blood or paint. Which I get Dude, that because the guys paint. are the people they're fighting are going to be wearing the same thing. Mm. Uh, so they attack a mining vessel, and Chubby Sting wants to know who this Moadib is that people keep saying the names, and then two years go by. Yeah. Because this late not... in the movie, we need that to happen. Oh, yeah, it's like what, like forty-five minutes left in the movie, and there's a two-year time jump. Yep. Is there that much left in the movie? I thought it was less than that. Uh... Maybe it's forty-five. I don't know, but I was like, what? Two jump two years? And it, but here's it, it's the thing. Way, it, it might be half an hour. I think you're actually right. It's it's way later than it should right. be. Right, and then we get the <laughs> montage scene. You know, Paul and Johnny's love grew as they rebellion. You know, blah, 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 but blah, here's blah, the yeah. thing. Here's well, the like, thing. Like, the most interesting Dune movie or movies you could possibly make are probably within this two years. They just fly that, over. That's what oh. I was thinking too. Like, like this is where the first act should end. Not at, like. Where the fuck this is in the fifth act? Where the f- the fuck they're trying to pull off with this movie? Yeah, like there's there's like tons of movies. Like you could make a TV series of Dune based on this two year period of like having you'd have more action in it. You've had dramatic stakes. You have sides playing each other. Like this well, yeah, could it, be awesome. I would. The, the rise of Muad'Dib is much more interesting than what's been happening in the rest of the movie. Right. Start the movie with the Atreides arriving on Arrakis. Fill us in with expedition mm-hmm. stuff later. Quickly get to them getting turned on and Paul out of there. Like, well, if, Yeah, if you have them arriving at Arrakis when the movie starts, that cuts the first half hour of the movie out, at least. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's interesting stuff. That, I don't know. Does the book skip? Two years? Oh no! I like, I did not get that far into the book. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, the, the book doesn't skip two years. Okay, but this is where I'm like, whoa, where this is? There's I can just imagine stories happening in this portion, but well, and also if we saw some of that two years, we could also see Paul's sister and give a shit about her. Yeah, when she shows up, my brother. Well, Melanie does the better, all of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
Chubby Stick. My brother, Baron. Oh, it's, oh, it's perfect. Oh. <laughs> my skin is crawling. <laughs> During the two years, uh, the Chubby Sting hides all this from his uncle. Uh, Alia also ages and learns quickly. Like, ages fast, and her skills as a reverend mother excel. Uh, because she has the abilities of uh, Benny Gesserit. Is that right? Yeah, yep. right. And. Guys, just so you know, Paul and Shawnee's love grows even fonder. Okay? Sure Take does. our word for it. They, they have the to tell us, yeah. Uh, during one of the battles, he runs into Gurney, and they reunite. And it's like, yay, Patrick Stewart's back. <laughs> but it's worth, he's back. Huzzah. No dog. No dog this time, though. Uh, the guild comes to the Emperor and demands he bring Arrakis to control. Uh, the words that spice mining is in danger... Uh, no one knows or can see the danger, or, or can see uh, the Muad'Dib. Paul then has a dream about the guild wanting him killed because he will take the water of life. Paul awake, awakens frightened and says all the images in his future are gone and demands to drink the water of life. Shani worries he'll die, but Paul says he must prove who he is. So they leave with some men to the desert where Paul is tied up, laid out, and Shani feeds him the water, telling him... He is her life, and she will love him forever. Paul then envisions... The worm is the spice. The spice is the worm. The worms arrive and do not attack. Uh, Meanwhile, Jessica and Aaliyah are bleeding from their faces. Yeah. And uh, realizes Paul has taken the water of life. They tried and died. (laughs) Paul travels to the, uh, the place so... Uh, so terrifying where women cannot look. He travels without moving and realizes he controls the world and the spice with the power to destroy it ever. Paul arises in the desert. His eyes are now blue, uh, blue, blue on blue and says, Father, the sleeper has awakened. And back at the caverns, people are chanting Muad'Dib at Paul. He tells them the storm is coming. Their, their storm, it will shake the universe and says, Emperor, we come for you. And he's on his way to Arrakis. And long live <laughs> the fighters! Right. I mean, there's stuff, it's it's funny. There's Big old so- map painting in this scene, too, where yeah. they like, show off like this giant underground corridor yeah. full of Fremen, right? The, that. This movie has so much stuff to make like an amazing trailer. Like mm-hmm. lines like that, and and just like you know stuff to look at. That I, I could get why there was like tons of excitement. Oh, this, I was but, stoked, like... <laughs> but I wasn't afterwards. Yeah. As the... <laughs> well, I mean, well, when I saw when when I saw it in the theater, I, I think I was like thirteen or fourteen or something, and I was just like, that was nowhere near there. I mean, and I hated it at the time because I was like, I was nowhere near near the book. They cut out whole parts of the book, blah blah blah, blah and all this other stuff, you know. But as I've grown older, I've I've re- appreciated its charms. Uh, it's grown on me after over the years. As as the Emperor lands, Fremen prepare for battle. Stilgar, do we have Worm Sign? We have Worm Sign! <laughs> we have the... Worm Sign like only God has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the the Emperor demands that to see the floating fat man. The Baron says he never requested his presence. Uh, Emperor says his lack of management forced him there to set things straight. And then Alia shows up to give a message from Moadib. Alia <laughs> is in the mind of the Reverend Mother, who is threatened by her. The Reverend Mother reveals that Alia is the daughter of Duke, of the Duke and Jessica. 
Remove this abomination! The Emperor realizes Paul is the Muad'Dib. A storm comes on Arrakis. Uh, the Fremen gear up in white outfits this time. And Alia tells the Emperor her brother is coming with many warriors and is there now. Paul voiceover says, Father, today I will avenge your death. Paul and, and an army ride in on Worms the castle. Big battle ensues with the Fremen just kicking ass. Uh, during the battle, Aaliyah kills the Baron by sticking him with her Gamjabar and then ripping some of his cords from him. He floats away and is eaten by a sandworm. Paul confronts the Emperor and then does a duel to the death with Sting. who Sting just wanted to kill him the whole movie because there was a scene where he's like, I wish it was Paul Atreides. Uh, yeah. yeah. This is the first thing that Sting has done that matters to the movie. Yeah. This character could literally be taken out entirely. Even this last scene is not fucking important. He's yeah. already won. Yeah. And, and then there's one more fight. Who fucking cares? It's done. Yeah. Paul shoots him in the head. It's all over. Dancing around. Yeah. Paul stabs Sting in the neck and then yells and he crushes the floor that he's lying on. But it's like apparently he burst his organs too. I got that yeah, from reading, that not from. is sweet. Oh, I see. Before me is an Atreides. I want to kill. The sting killing Sting is like a, a cheer, like crowd pleasing worthy moment, but nothing in Sting's character has built up to make you want to feel that way. Like we should be like, yeah, but Sting just walked around like giving stares the whole movie. Yeah, he but... he held a cat like. <laughs> if 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 Paul had stormed into uh, the castle and Sting confronted him as they were, like, running through the halls, then that would have fucking mattered. Instead, it's, he's already defeated the Emperor. They're already quartered. This battle's fucking over. Like, no, I want to fight him. Like, no, it's done. Wrap it up. <laughs> five minutes of the movie left. We're fucking done. It, Paul has done this without the weirding module, by the way. Ooh. So he then decides he has the power to make it rain on Arrakis, and he does. <laughs> yep. And he decides. And he missed, his name has become a killing word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then apparently the word for rain. <laughs> Aaliyah says he is the Quitsats Hatterach. Yep. Yeah. And how can this be? How can this be? And then well, he is the Quitsats Hatterach. <laughs> and that's. And that's it. The credits start rolling like an answer nope. key in the back of a textbook. <laughs> with all the profiles and names. And yeah, that's it. That was it's Dune uh, to be continued in uh, Dune Messiah that never happened. Dune will be back in Dune, Dune 2, Dune Harder. I I'll... can't imagine it being any harder than this <laughs> <laughs> I just failed watching this. It was so hard. It's a... <laughs> a big wait, wait. epic of confusing, disastrous proportions. The first, when I was watching this, the first hour actually went by relatively quickly. I just, you know, I just checked the time as I was watching it. I was like, oh, God, how much, how long have I been watching this? It was like an hour. Like, oh, thank God. Because like, I was worried like only a half hour had gone by. <laughs> but it that first hour goes by pretty quickly. The rest of it does not. <laughs> See, I, I, the opposite. The first hour, I was just like scared to death of following along, and I was just, I was like, man, what? It was just so much setup, so much setup, and then like for some reason, it is, a, it is a lot of setup. After, after the attack on the Atreides, like 
things just got so much simpler and I relaxed a bunch more and I was able to fit like it needed it, it needed to finish a little f- quicker but I mean learning stuff with the Fremen was a lot better than learning stuff with the Emperor and the uh, the Cali- mm. on Caliban and, and and Virginia Madsen giving me a, a a course on Frank Herbert's dune at like <laughs> I was able to follow more, and and some of the stuff sticks, but it also is infuriating because there's like a ton of stuff you're given at the beginning of the movie that doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who cares that it's the year ten thousand? It didn't fucking matter. I, as far as we know, these people aren't even from Earth because Earth is never fucking mentioned, so it doesn't matter what year it is. This can just be some other, you know, uh, um, time. Uh, continuity or you know it's like star wars you know it can be a, a, a long time ago in a galaxy far far away it doesn't fucking matter look I, I know people when they have books they want the closest adaptation as possible they want everything from the book but books and film are two completely different mediums like you can't do yeah. everything that's in a book this movie proves that i know lynch made changes but he's trying his damnedest to adapt the entire story when I listened to that audio book, the, I listened to about six hours of it, all right? This was a 21-hour audio book. The first six hours of that book was the first hour of this movie. Oh. So, so I, I, I think some trimming could have been done. I, it, was, it was done in the wrong places where yeah. all the action and interesting shit happened. That was right. gone. Instead, it's just a fucking hour of setup. What you need to do is find the, the what is the story here. Make it that like adapt, change. Like I mean, you're gonna have to like change stuff and and make it. If you're gonna make a film out of Dune and not a miniseries, then yeah. Which the miniseries, I think I tried to watch it back when it aired, and I was just like, no. Nope. And I, I've heard people compare it. Not that the, I'm not saying this movie is Kubrick's The Shining, but they've said it's like. This movie is better, and then that that's like the, the TV version of The Shining with Steven Weber compared to the, this movie. Mm. This one at least has uh, an ar- artist's touch to it, has style and flair, and that one's just static and just boring. Well, th- th- this movie should be the hero's journey of Paul. Yep. To do that, he's got to get on his fucking path a lot fucking sooner. The first half... First 30 minutes, he's on his fucking way. He's in the desert. He's fucking learning about sandworms and teaching these people to fight. Because, like, you know, the uh, summary that I read at the beginning of this movie, that's what it should fucking be. Him <laughs> gathering these warriors together to avenge his father and take back the planet. Instead, it's just... <sighs> a fucking history lesson. You know who doesn't yeah. need to be in this movie? This movie is about the Harkonnens... And the Fremen, with a, a cameo by the Atreides. This doesn't need the Emperor. This doesn't need right. the Navigators or the the Guild. They can be mentioned as mm-hmm. something afar, but they, they have no purpose in this story. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I, I, there's a core story to this that, that could be a good movie. That, but you got to drop stuff from the book to make this work. And like I said, like maybe you don't do dune but you pick port parts that would be interesting and the, like that two-year gap there's a tv series in there there's a movie series in there there's cool stuff that's that's what you want especially if you're trying to make star wars there you go there's your your good and evil fighting 
right? In, in an endless war that you know you you get to, but yeah, there's there are multiple people with, like, for lack of a better term, magical powers. You tell me you can't fucking exploit that to be interesting. Again, you know, very dense book, a lot of stuff there, and very hard to adapt. You know, obviously, obviously. Yeah. I feel like you're 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 missing the point of the joy of garbage this movie really is. I mean, well, it's 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 beautiful. It's beautiful and it's ridiculousness. Well, it's I just the way it is. I'm not gonna right. disagree. I but I I'm, feel like I feel like Colin. I feel like you're so mad. I <laughs> am. <so> mad. <laughs> I'm, I expect I, more from a classic. I, I don't, or maybe that's not the right word. I don't know. I am mad. It's better. I <laughs> know. I'm just thinking of like, you know, they made Dune this way, but like, how could you make this into that movie they wanted it to be when you, when they set out to make it? I think you hit on it when you said if this were a miniseries, like if yeah. they had done this, like if HBO redid mm-hmm. Dune with some of that, you know, Game of Thrones money, that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it looks beautiful. So they, they got that part of the movie right, and right. the the, uh, the soundtrack is I think is excellent. I think it's really fitting, and the acting is wonderful. Everything else, <laughs> not great. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, it's the, it's the best worst movie. It really is. It's just really it's yeah. good in so many ways and it excels in so many ways, but it's still a terrible. Terrible, it, ridiculous it movie. It so mm-hmm. doesn't make me mad. It's like it's like when you go to you know the the amusement park and the ride that is the dumbest ride, but but you know entranced you as a kid is still your favorite. Like it, it's it's still just a great movie, even though it's dumb. Which <laughs> I don't know. I just I love it. Or it's like watching a play uh, written and produced by five year olds. You know, like, they tried so hard. Well, better than that. I know, but, but you it, know but what I mean, like, right? But it's like five-year-olds trying to take on like serious issues. They don't fully grasp what the real issue is. Plus, the cast, like like uh, Brandon was saying, too wide in that man. There's so much stuff that you don't didn't need to know. Well, I do agree with that. I mean, I, I think, and I think that you know, Brandon definitely has the eye going there where. You see that it could be improved very, you know, with, with some judicious editing and some this and some that, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I just think I think it's one of those things that I, I would love to live to see when, you know, this becomes uh, a production. You know, you know how we see like Shakespeare, Shakespeare play. I'm not saying it's Shakespeare, but, you know, when you see Shakespeare plays that are, you know, redone and reimagined and put into the modern world and all this other stuff. It would be very interesting to see how this thing lives over the next, I don't know, thousand years. Because I think that this is so crazy, it'll it'll stick around. That's oh, no, no, we still talk about Dune today. It's still brought up as a property. Because, like, I mean, uh, we're getting a Denis uh, Villeneuve version of it uh, mm-hmm. within the next two years. And I, I imagine that film's going to look beautiful, but we'll... He uh, did Arrival, uh, Prisoners, uh, Enemy. That's uh, exciting news. He's uh, yeah. his next film's Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which looks. I mean, he's got he's got he's one of the most talented visual artists right now, but and then he's do a bunch of Ken Russell movies just for the hell of it. There you go. This movie has stuck around. It, it really has. As much as people trash it and stuff, it's it's always brought up. 
And it, and it always will stick around because it's, you know, done by David Lynch, who's, you know, one of the most popular uh, auteurs of all time. So it's always right. going to always gonna come up, which I, I think this movie, if it would have been even more Lynch, would be better. I'd rather just be well, confused, like kinda, be confused the... and let my brain figure things out rather than them force it upon me. Well, that was part of the uh, the criticism was that, you know, for the, the mainstream sci-fi audience, it was too weird. And for the David Lynch audience, it was too, you know, too normal. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was too much of, of you know, both. <laughs> Why can't the vagina monster be the star of it? That's what they wanted. Which David Lynch is so upset about this movie. Like, he, he doesn't want to be asked about it. And he also has been offered to make his own cut of the movie multiple times since the advent of DVD and Blu-ray and he refuses to return. Right. He's mad. Colin, are you writing to him? He didn't tell me to write to, uh, to say these things or anything. No. <laughs> I just want to bring to uh, your attention one of my favorite things about this movie, which is, first of all, the spice is called melange which means mixture. <laughs> French, yeah. That so always I, don't... Me. I always thought it was really funny that, uh, you know, it's this amazingly pure, incredible spice mix. <laughs> I well, also then... appreciate and, and chuckle every time at the fact that, you know, here we are again with these space Russian novel names and ridiculous titles. And yet we've got, you know, the best friend, affable cowboy soldier, Duncan Idaho. That's his last name, Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But probably my favorite thing is, you know, in this incredibly heavy moment, here, here is, you know, our, our hero on his hero's journey in the cave. And what do you want to be called? <laughs> and he says, what do you call the mouse shadow on yes. the second moon? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I gotta tell you, and they have a name for it. That's the thing. Like (laughs) I felt like I was just mishearing it. Like he can't be saying mouse shadow, right? He's actually saying like he's not referring to something that that, a shadow on a moon that looks like a mouse, is he? It must be some other. I'm mishearing this. It must be the moosh. It must be some kind of magical word, right? He doesn't really want to be named after a shadow of a mouse. But no, it's mouse shadow. When he said that line, I gave a look like if I were in like a reality show, I would have looked right into the camera as if to say like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> How did Kyle McLaughlin keep his straight face saying, what is the, what do you call the mouse shadow on the second moon? <laughs> <laughs> well, he must've been, he must've been promised the ether rag that David Lynch was using. I, he had to be sedating them somehow. Like I had to be like, how do you stay? Like, yes, there's all this import that's heavy and, you know, it's beautiful and majestic. And, and you can imagine that David Lynch has everybody wrapped up in his in his narrative and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to say, <laughs> you call the mouse shadow. It's it's amazing that McLaughlin Lynch stuck with McLaughlin like and he was the star of his greatest failure. This is the first time they worked together is that he was the star of his greatest failure, but he kept. He brought him back for Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks. I think he's even lost Highway, he, didn't he? Yeah, he brought yeah. back Everett McGill, who played Stilgar, too. Yeah, he's yeah. Stilgar, he was in Twin Peaks as well. Yeah, and you know, he always had Jack Nance and, uh, and Dean, Dean Stockwell. Stockwell but, but, yeah. yeah. But, it's, yeah, it's amazing they did that. Um, 
here's a weird thing. You know, I point out the love of Shanti and Paul, but the the ending they cut from this movie had him exiling the emperor and then like marrying Virginia Madsen. Yep. Paul Atreides. I'm like, what? What? But you've loved Shanti forever. It was a diplomatic well, marriage. It was maybe like that's, peace in the galaxy or something. Yeah, that's the concubine thing right there, rearing its ugly head. Uh-huh. I mean, was, uh, I, mean I would go for the... Virginia Madsen over Sean Young, but yeah. Well, you've never right. seen the Jug movie about her life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> was that in the uh, the novel that Paul marries the uh, the princess instead of Shanti? Yeah, he like he still loves Chani, but like uh, he marries the princess so he can keep peace in the galaxy. Well, she's also in the book a bit more as well. Yeah, she's an actual character, not just a woman standing around. Right. So I'm mean, Sean Young, '80s Sean Young, or '80s Virginia Madsen. Do you have to? Do you have to get approved by Michael Madsen first to be with Virginia? Because <laughs> that might be a big factor. Do we have one sign? Do we have one sign the likes of which even God has never seen? Now comes the point in the episode where we rate the film we just watched. As we are Colson Cinema Cavalcade, we keep things nice and culty. Our ratings are as follows. Stay with your family, which means you are staying on Arrakis, mining the spice. Converted, which means you are leaning into the Baron's ideas of uh, betraying the Atreides. Or drinking the Kool-Aid. You are all knee-deep in some Fremen. So, Jim, how do you rate Dune? I am drinking the Kool-Aid. I just, I, I can't, I love a good, bad movie. As you well know, like we talked about the Apple the last time I was on. And uh, I, I, I just feel like Dune is just this incredible anomaly of cinema where, like, you know, so much, you know, went right. And yet it's just so terrible. I, I love it for that. And I just, I love I love the goofy dialogue. I love I love the subplots that go nowhere. I love the I, I just I, I love the ineptitude of something that has so many integral parts that are of such high quality, but like just not going anywhere at all. <laughs> so, but I, I love it for for what it is, and it's kind of like goofy goofiness. Melanie, oh, I am a hundred percent drinking the blue water of life Kool Aid. Definitely. I think I think this movie is hilarious and amazing. And depending on what kind of mood I'm in, it's just, you know, it's one of those like there's only I, I'm not I'm not the, you know, the big media head that my husband Jim is. But I there are I have a few movies in my life that like are stop everything movies. Right. And this is this is top of the list. And after this is uh, Beastmaster. So. That's, you know, that that is like Saturday afternoon, everything screeches to a halt, sit the hell down on the couch and watch this shit. So Jim, Jim and I, you know, occasionally he'll just, he'll just say like, I think it's a Dune night. And I'm like, yeah. Or, yeah. We'll, do, or we'll double feature it with uh, Flash Gordon. Oh. oh yeah. Flash Gordon it's is a, another a good double feature. top everything movie for sure. Yeah. But it's no Dune. It's no Beastmaster, but it's, you know, I, I just think this is like, just, I am, I am, it gives me joy to be alive to know that this movie is on the planet with me. And on probably the opposite end of the spectrum, Cullen. <laughs> you know, we, we, we watch a lot of uh, not great movies, so I'm no stranger to, to bad movies. Uh, a big 
qualifier when, when I'm writing these movies is if I'm going to watch it again. And almost every movie that we watch, Brandon and I, we, we talk about was the worst thing that we've, we've watched and where something is bad. We say, is it worse than Blood Freak? It was a horror exploitation Christian propaganda anti-drug movie. Wow. Yeah. That's it, a lot. It, Yes, it was. And it was just a, a total damn mess. And there was a scene where a turkey got its head cut off. Uh, like an actual turkey got its head cut off. I would sooner watch that again before I watch Dune. <laughs> uh, really? I absolutely would. I think Dune is wonderfully shot. I think the sets are wonderful. Great special effects, very good music, well acted. The first act is half the fucking movie. That's that's <laughs> unforgivable. <laughs> I could not stand for that. That internal dialogue shit would happen in the movie. Even when there were people that didn't have mind powers, you would still hear what they were thinking. Even when there was a person, no one in that scene had mind powers. You just fucking heard them speaking internally, whispering God, it was terrible. So I stay with my family strongly on Dune. Colin, I gotta tell you, you you just make me love the movie more. (laughs) And that's fine. You're welcome to it. If you hate yourself that much that you like watching Dune, that's fine. That's your prerogative. My piece. Okay. (laughs) So, Brandon, how do you rate Dune? Well, I'll say all the reasons you gave compliments for doing are reasons I would watch this in a heartbeat over Blood Freak again. I can't think of another film that gets like 90% of everything right and well, so well done, but the other 10% just drags the rest of it down. Exactly. Like, it's insane. I, I was like, it's got impressive set design, all this stuff. Uh, it's, you know, acted well, but just the, the dialogue and. And it, the the chore that, like I said, like you open the door and it punches you right in the face. You know, here's homework, and <laughs> and all this all this crap. It, it's oh, but like once it, I, once it settled down, I started to enjoy it more. And I just, it's like feel like I could just skip to the Atreides, like leaving the planet, uh, and enjoy the movie a lot more. It's because it gets a bit more streamlined, or you're you can see the streamlining a bit more than the movie does. I didn't I didn't hate watching this too much and I could I, I'll probably you know at some point watch it watch it again or whatever but I, 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 I didn't decide you know I wasn't keen on deciding my choice till you know we got to hear in the episode and like I, I kind of wanted to give it a converted but I'm gonna have to say I stay at home with my family because I this has to be for the right people and and it's not even not e- for everyone. Not even not even the bad movie people. Not even like the people that like the so bad it's good movie. Like you gotta there's like an intersect within that group, a subgenre that could appreciate Dune. I've I appreciate Dune for a lot of for the visuals, the the costuming, like like all, like all the things we've said before. It's just it's incredible. Um, it, I mean there is greatness in this movie, but there is such a mess of this adaptation and 
storytelling that just doesn't work that I just I can't go on with it. I can probably watch this again. Like I said, like it's watchable. Dune is very watchable because you can sit and look at the backgrounds and all this stuff, but if you, it can hurt your brain way too much as well. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to stay with my family, though I was tempted to to be converted, but ultimately I just had to think, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I could, but I didn't. This you, movie's like a, like, a, like a jigsaw puzzle where you've got the outside of it all put together and it's starting to come together really nicely and then you just take the rest of the box and just dump it in the middle of the jigsaw puzzle just jam everything down and just like there it's, it's done like, or, no. or, or or you, you put it done. or you put it all, all together you didn't know what it was and you're like oh it's it's a dick oh okay <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be more appealing to look at than the smoke vagina brain monster with arms i have a question it never explains so Star Wars hits big in 77 and inspires a whole new wave of sci-fi in the late 70s to mid 80s, which I I think probably, you know, Star Wars happens and then we start seeing them stop going for the next Star Wars at Masters of the Universe. That's probably the last attempt to create the next Star Wars. I mean, there will always be someone, but the, the push of trying to find that probably ends about there. We know Alien does well. We know Blade Runner. But, like, of these ones really trying to capture the fantasy adventure of, of Star Wars, is Dune the best one? Mm. Production value, yes. Yeah, but production, yes. As far as, like, best movie? Best of movie that, of that them group, all. I'd say no. I'd probably lost Starfighter. I would say it would be a better movie. Okay. Than Dune, I mean, just straight up, like as a good movie, you know. It's, yeah. It's a quantifiably but, good or bad movie, not you know, like me, like a masochist like me who likes bad movies. You so know? yeah, like um, Jim and you and I had a discussion about like you know our our appreciation. Like I am fascinating with this. This is like I am the slasher genre where I love watching them and seeing like the many riffs on Halloween and seeing who does what with it. Some are actually solid movies, some are garbage, but I enjoy them for seeing what they're trying to do by trying to do their best to be a movie, but not be that movie kind of. And that's kind of the same thing with these movies, like space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone and all that. Right. I'm a, I like crawl. I do. Um, that'll be on the stars has a certain charm to it. (laughs) That's a Um, tough one to get through. It's not. It's not a great movie, but I mean, there are parts. I love John Saxon in that, and I love George Pard in that. Like, if I want to, if I want to, like, watch one and like laugh, like Star Crash is hilarious. Even yeah, bef- even before, I, even Ice Pirates is very entertaining. Yeah, Ice Pirates. Like, goofy yeah. way, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering, like, Dune wins the like the one to capture the the epic scale and feel of things, but as a movie, probably no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a whole. It has its shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> Got a couple of things to overlook. Yeah, That's what know. it should have said on the poster. Like, cards on the table, it has its shortcomings. There you go. <laughs> like, all the paragraphs and one little asterisk. <laughs> yeah. It has its shortcomings. <sighs> Dune, we bit off more than we could chew. <laughs> <laughs> On the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be launching into something special. Next month, we are claiming as 
June Don Baker month. <laughs> we'll be we'll be doing Joe Don Baker movies all next month. So our next oh episode will be Golden Needles from 1974. It's a chase film co-starring Jim Car- Kelly, Burgess Meredith, Ann Southern, and Elizabeth Ashley. Be ready for June Don Baker month. I have to go f- see if I can That's find a ge- sixer or a Schlitz. That's some genius marketing there. I yes. Uh, I hope you guys have a great June Don Baker month. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen, continues to support our show. Uh, special thanks to the Dietz family for coming on. Oh, thank you kindly. Uh, thank you for having us. What's going on at HHWL do right now? Well, right now the DC TV podcast is about to have its 100th episode uh, at the season end. At the same time, Flash Arrow and Supergirl are ending their seasons. So uh, we're going to have a big clip show for the 101st. For the, for the 100th episode, I think we're going to go live uh, right after the uh, the end of the season, so uh, stay tuned for that. But yeah, 100 episodes for DC TV. That's pretty sweet. Uh, Walking Dead TV podcast will be back in June with Fear the Walking Dead, and uh, Nothing's On is on every week. We're also doing uh, spoiler casts for a lot of the uh, bigger movies of the summer. We just did one for Guardians of the Galaxy. We have one for Kong Skull Island and one for King Arthur, both going up this week. And then next week will be one for Alien Covenant. So check right. that out. Excellent. Head on over. We'll have links in the show notes. So we look forward to next time. But first, stay tuned for the trailer to Golden Needles, the trailer that actually trails. According to an ancient legend, the human body has seven forbidden acupuncture points. If stimulated correctly with a special golden needle, the result is everlasting youth, pleasure, and vitality. Incorrectly. The result is agonizing death. Seven points, seven needles, golden needles that can rule the world. American International presents Golden Needles. From the gracious mansions of Beverly Hills to the teeming waterfront of the China Sea, seven people seek the treasure of pain and pleasure. The fabulous Golden Needles. It's beautiful, as they say. Uh, 250,000. You're insane. You shall match any amount of money that is offered. What do you want? 30,000 American dollars. You got it. That's a deal. Joe Don Baker, that big man from Walking Tall, as a soldier of fortune, grasping for one last chance. That's the baby. his friends and his enemies he's had a hard time staying alive elizabeth ashley as felicity am i gonna take you home she's beautiful definitely smart and definitely not to be trusted here's my i lost it she lost it and southern as finzi the mahjong queen she has a yen for men uh-huh. money and mayhem <laughs> Burgess Meredith as Winters. He's so rich, he can kill with a wave of his hand. Now you'll get me the statue and the needles. Bring them to this specific spot. And if you don't, you will be subtracted. Jim Kelly as Jeff. He has a talent for karate and a taste for trouble. Roy Chow as Lin Tao. He's an artist. He works in oils and blood. Frances Fong as Su Lin. She may look delicate, but watch out. 
one desperate people on one desperate chase to find the golden needles. He who owns them can rule the world. listening to Cult Cinema Cavalcade. You can find more of Colin's work on the Creative Zombie Studios Network and on Twitter at my name is Colin. You can find more of Brandon's work at whysoblue.com and on Twitter at BT Peters. Podcast produced by Brad Shoemaker. Edited by Brandon. Narration by Becky. Theme song Pink Baby by Happy Elf found on the freemusicarchive.org network. The movie in today's discussion is property of its respective studio and no infringement is intended. Please remember to leave us an iTunes rating and review. Join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade. Dune takes place on four planets. I could never keep them straight. It introduces dozens of characters with unpronounceable names. I couldn't keep them straight. Basically, what's going on, I think, is that this young man's mission is to destroy the universe's dependency on a substance called spice, which has everybody doped up, and also to harness some devil worms. If he can do all that, worms that crawl up like Moby Dick out of the sea, in this case, out of the desert, and I tell you, Gregory Peck was a lot more interesting chasing the worm, uh, the Moby Dick than this guy is surfboarding off one of these worms. This is a shocking film at times. If he does all that, if he can harness those worms, he's going to bring peace to the world. But what a load of junk we have to sit through with people getting their nipples ripped off their chests and having fluid drop out, with a premature baby being born in blood, with facial boils being lanced. It's like a medical show. The filmmaking is shoddy also in several respects. Giant holes in the story are filled with apparently last-minute voice over narrations to explain what's happening to characters. Crucial accent scenes are begun, then needlessly interrupted, sometimes forgotten. Basically, I watched two things while watching Dune. I watched the movie, yes, and I watched my watch. This film was pure torture to sit through. Uh, I didn't now, like why it. Is, <laughs> now, why isn't it... Why did you say... No, it doesn't no, qualify for... I said you couldn't bring a Roma the Educated Skunk. Why around. not? I don't think it's a skunk. I think it's a bad movie. I don't recommend it. But I do think it qualifies as one of the great follies of motion picture history. And I think that for some people, first of all, the Dune fanatics are probably going to go see it anyway. For certain other people, Let them. there's a certain amount of interest in this film. There's a certain amount of shocking but why interest isn't it, but why in these isn't amazing it? sets that are, you know, totally senseless. And never used, and they walk through, and you see $30 million behind them, and then they go into some little room and do something. It's amazing uh, how arrogant they were in thinking that they didn't have to tell any story at all. And then it's amazing that, that then they throw in the narration. It starts out with the actress Virginia Madsen on right. screen, and she's saying, these are a few things you need to know about my father and about these four planets <laughs> right. and about the worms and so forth. And you're saying, wait a minute, I'd rather be confused and not know anything than be confused by the explanation. Yeah. I sat there. You may have heard me. Five minutes into this film, I yelled out at the screen, I give up. <laughs> I was, and then I had to watch the rest of it. And yet there are certain images in the film that are striking. There are certain moments oh, that are fun, even if they are gruesome. I don't recommend the film, yet at the same time, it is, not, it is not the skunk of the week because it's not totally worthless. Because just as an example of a totally misguided project, I think it deserves a little niche of its own in the cinematic hall of fame. It's a skunk.